The following audio is from Grace City Church in San Diego, California. More information about Grace City Church is available at gracecitysd.com. Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that she shall obtain children by her, that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you're pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He will be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him and he shall dwell over all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen someone who looks after me. Therefore, the well was called Beer Lahairoi. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abraham. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who sees, that you are a God who is completely sovereign over everything. God, in this moment, we pray, um, God, not that our intellect would uh, ascend to a place where we say, oh, we just thought... Um, we just thought the best thoughts or had the most knowledge, God, but would you do a miracle in our hearts and our lives? Um, would you show us the truth? We thank you that your word does that. Your word shows us the truth, shows us the message of the gospel, and that you see us. We love you. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks, Billy. All right. Good morning. All right, so uh, today, if you're new this morning, welcome. My name is Randall, I'm the lead pastor of Grace City, and uh, we're in this series right now called The Gospel in Genesis. Uh, we've been looking at the first book of the Bible in the Old Testament, uh, really working through it from the start. So we looked at creation, um, God created everything, and then now we've uh, jumped into the life of 
Abraham. Um, and so some of you, maybe you've grown up in church, you've heard of Abraham before, and others for you, it's, it's new. And so we've been looking at the life of Abraham, and it's very interesting in today's text what we're going to see. Um, and so we're looking at, if you've got your Bibles, Genesis 16, 1 through 16. Um, and here's the message. The God who sees. The God who sees. Um, in the early 2000s, there was this show called Boiling Points. Um, the premise of the show was to test how long it would take for uh, someone to emotionally explode, right? And so they would be put into different situations. Um, and and it's, this is like in a very frustrating situation. Um, and they would be tested for 14 minutes to see if they could last. And whoever would last without emotionally exploding would make $100. A lot of money, right? No. Um, but, but here's the key to the show. The key to the show was that everyone being tested didn't know they were being filmed or didn't even know they were, being, or they were on a TV show. Um, and all of us were able to watch what happened. Now, that's what it feels like in the book of Genesis as we look at Abraham's life, is that we get to read through and watch as he's being put through test after test after test and really getting to a boiling point. Um, and so again, Genesis 16, here's what happens, you know. Uh, another boiling point moment. See, over the past few weeks as we looked at his life, uh, we see that Abraham is very influential. Uh, we know this because he's the, the key figure in three major world religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam. Uh, but as we've talked about Abraham, what we've seen is that he is not, by any stretch of the imagination, a, a perfect man. He doesn't have it all together. He gets put into these boiling point moments and he over, he, he, he explodes. He explodes. And so in many ways, we realize that Abraham could only become the man that God calls him to be by God's grace. God's grace. And, and for us today, this should be very relatable, right? That we don't have it all together, that we're not perfect, yet it is God's grace and God is shaping a man of God and changing him from the inside out. That's what we see as we look at the life of Abraham. And so today in, in his boiling point here, this is him and his wife, Sarai. And we get to examine this because um, from the start, we, we see that their life is a life of grace. See, in Genesis 12, God uh, gave Abram a calling, this, this promise, he says, that I'm going to make you into a great nation. We looked at in Genesis 15 that God gave him a little more information about how it was going to happen. He says it's going to be through a son. And then verse 3, it tells us Abram and Sarai have waited 10 years for God's promise to happen. See, we don't see that in the text because we read it and it's like, it's just the next chapter. But now at, at, at this point, they've waited 10 years. And here's what's happening. They're getting older. And Sarai's patience is wearing thin. It's wearing really thin. About uh, Genesis 16, commentator Derek Kidner says this. He says, this chapter marks another stage in eliminating every means but miracle toward the promised birth. Right? Like God made this promise to Abram that he's going to be a great nation, that he was going to have a son. But this is another point where he's just eliminating 
that it's going to be because of Abram and Sarah and their ability to do it. It has to be a miracle from God. This story is about how God is the hero. God is the hero throughout the Bible again and again and again and again. That's the only hero in the scriptures is God. And so how does this narrative unfold in Genesis 16? Well, it happens in three stages. And so if you're taking notes today, I'm going to give you all three up front. Here's what they are. The frustrating problem, the selfish plan, the redeeming presence. The frustrating problem, the selfish plan, the redeeming presence. And so as we break down today's text, uh, we're going to start in verses one through three with the frustrating problem. And so here's what it says in, in verses one through three. It says, now Sarai... Abram's wife had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived 10 years, there it is, 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, as a wife. Now, here's what's happening. The promise that God gave that there would be a son, that Abram would be a great nation, this promise has now become a problem in their lives. You know what happens when problems start to rise up, right? Like, there's that thing in us that makes us feel like we need to fix it. That, that we need to take charge, that we need to take control. And so that's what's happening. See, because the one thing that we've seen throughout the life of Sarah is this. It's that she's barren. She can't have children. And what we uh, need to, to know is that this has to bring up a lot of hurt and a lot of pain for Sarah. Because particularly in her culture, this was the worst thing that she could be known for. Yet what we see throughout scripture is that this is what it talks about with her from when we meet her in Genesis chapter 11. And, and what this is doing is getting us to this place where, okay, for 10 years now, she's carried this burden. You know what the burden is? When Abram told her, that there would be a son. That there would be a son. There's this promise now, right? Like God gave a little bit more information to him in Genesis 15. And so for now 10 years, she's carrying this burden of, okay, there's going to be a son. But, but how's that going to happen? See, in Genesis 15, we see the how's that going to happen for Abram. And, and he had this resolute feeling of, okay, that's how it's going to happen. I'm going to trust God in this. But now it's Sarai's turn. Now it's her turn to say, what are you going to do now that you have this information? How's it going to happen, God? You see, in the midst of this promise that becomes a problem, here's what we need to know. We need to know that we know the end of the story. But she's living in the gap of, she doesn't. <laughs> See, we can, we can just skip over a few chapters and, and we know all about Isaac. But she didn't. And so she's wrestling with this. And, and, but here's the thing. What we see in this text is that God is at work the whole time. 
But like I talked about before, God is more interested in developing her character than he is about giving her what she wants. And so what is happening is he is revealing this deep, dark thing in the heart of Abram and Sarai. Deep, dark thing. Things that needed to be purged in their lives, in their hearts, that they wouldn't have seen unless they went through it. And so let's look at how Sarai responded to the problem, the promise that became a problem. First, she grumbles about God. Look at verse two. Sarah said to Abram, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Does this sound familiar? It it should take us back and, and, and remember Genesis three. It's that temptation of feeling like I'm not fully a human being. I'm fully not loved by God if I don't have this thing. And so now it's God is the problem. The Lord is preventing me from doing this. He's holding out. See, it's interesting how quickly we point fingers, right? Like, I've got three kids, and one of my tasks in the morning is to get them ready for school and get them out the door and get them to school. But uh, one of the things that my wife does is she gets their snack ready for the day and all those things. Well, there was a, a day a few weeks ago where I guess my wife took the snack bag and put it in my daughter's backpack, my daughter didn't know that. So, so when she woke up, she's, she's ready to go. She's ready to get out the door, but she's looking for that snack bag. And here's what she starts to say. She says, Mommy didn't pack my snack. Mom, mommy, Mommy didn't pack. Daddy, where, where's, where's the snack at? Mom, mommy didn't pack my snack today. Does Mommy want me to starve? She wants me to starve, doesn't she? She, she's, she just did not get myself ready today. She just wants me to starve. And, 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 and she's total meltdown, right? Total meltdown. And then we looked in the backpack, and the snack was there. Here's the thing. She's working off of her knowledge of what's going on. And so what her knowledge is is Some, like, my mom's holding out on me. My mom's kind of setting me up here to starve for the day. But again, what's Sarai doing? Same thing. God's holding out on me. He's preventing me from having this thing. And so he just, he just, he just, isn't this 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 terrible thing that God's done to me? Victim mentality. So she grumbles about God. And then what she does next is this. In verse 3, she says, Go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. What she starts to do is she starts to lean into her own logic. Like this this is what makes sense to me. I'm going to make this happen. If God's not going to do it, then... I'm going to figure out a plan. And as we read this today, we should all be in agreement, this is a terrible plan. Right? Like, really bad. 
right? Like, yeah, that, that's what's going to happen. Like, you're going to go sleep with my maidservant, and that, that's how this is going to work, and then I'm going to be able to. But here's the thing. This is what we need to know. She's convincing Abraham of something that was culturally acceptable at the time. It was culturally acceptable. See, in that culture, everyone did it like this. If they couldn't have it their way, they would make a way for it to happen. And so she convinces Abram of something that, again, she would have looked around at our culture and said, this is culturally acceptable. See, historians, archaeologists, and all those people um, who, who understood something about this, this ancient culture would have told you that during this time, in this part of the world, this was a universal practice. The, the one that was greater could say, well, this is how I'm going to make it work. But look at verses two and three. It says this, and Abram listened to the voice of Sarai, not the voice of God. He didn't ask God about this. Kind of went on his own. Abram's wife, it says, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram. Do you want to know what human effort outside of God looks like? This is it. This is it. It's not waiting patiently on God, but coming up with a plan to do things my way. You see how many times I and me are used? And and here's the thing. We've seen this before. Like like I said, look at at, uh, Genesis 3.17. When we look at the life of Adam and we parallel it with Abram in in 16.2. It says that they both, in the old language, hearkened to the voice of their wives. They, they, they listened. They said, I guess that's a reasonable plan. And, and they are both choosing to sin, just like in the garden. And this should remind us of those words, took and gave, that are paralleled in Genesis 3, 6, and Genesis 16, 3. See, just as Eve took and gave the fruit of the tree, Sarai now took and gave her servant to Abram. Both of them are choosing against God's plan and trusting in themselves. Os Guinness said this. He says, God's work must always be done in God's way to see results that are worthy of God's reality and greatness. God's reality and greatness, right? What we talked about before was this is supposed to be a miracle that could not have been taken credit for by Abram or Sarai. It wasn't about them. This was about God. And Ian DeGid says, what we have here is a classic human attempt to solve a problem with man's wisdom, not God's. Man's wisdom, not God's. And so, secondly, it's, it's the selfish plan. It's the selfish plan. Look at verses four through six. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. 
And Sarah, I said to Abram, may the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her and she fled from her. Here's what's happening. They got what they wanted. They got what they wanted. Hagar is now pregnant and the desired result becomes, brings out the worst in Sarai and Abram. And in many ways, this, this section should be very disturbing to us. It's the worst of sinful nature in man. Because here's what's happening. Abram commits adultery with Hagar. Sarai becomes upset because Hagar now despises her. Sarai goes to Abram and blames him for following the plan. Abram is complacent about it and tells Sarai to deal with it. And so Sarai physically abuses Hagar and she runs away. This this selfish plan has produced hurtful and destructive fruit. And now there's a pregnant mom on the run for her life. And for all intents and purposes, they have no hope of surviving. Her and this baby have no hope of surviving. Right? And Abram and Sarai, here's the scary part. Here's, they're okay with washing their hands of it. They're okay with it. Do you see, like, like, I talk with people. They're like, man, I, I am, it is hard for me to read the Old Testament. It's hard for me to read the Old Testament because this should be very disturbing in nature as we read it. And what you'll find is many things in the Old Testament are disturbing. But they are descriptive, not prescriptive. Do you know what I mean by that? It's describing exactly how ugly sin is. It's bringing it out into the open, into the light, and saying, this is what it is. Right, like we've got new sources and places that are trying their hardest to do that. Right, all the time. And and when we start to see some of the details of things like reality, it's scary. See, how do I know that the Bible's true? Because it doesn't, hide things like this. And it's not prescribing it because there are people who will say, well, you see, this is, what, this is, this is why, why I don't believe in the Bible. This is why I don't believe in God because this is what it's saying here. And, and so um, that must mean that God approves of that. He doesn't. We're going to see that next. He doesn't approve of this. But this is how ugly sin is and our hearts are and it, it should be disturbing to us. You know, Psalm 14, I was reading that the other day and one of the things it talks about is this. It says that no one is good. Not even one. No one. Not Abram, not Sarah, not, no one. No one is good. And God looks at this and it, 
It hurts him. See, this whole mess is an extreme sign of what happens when we take matters in our own hands instead of trusting God. It gets ugly. It gets messy. But here's the hope. Here's the gospel. It's the third point. It's the redeeming presence. Look at verses 7 through 13. It says, The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I I will surely multiply your offspring so that you cannot be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Now, the thing that should stick out to us is, who is this? Right? Like, who is talking to her in the wilderness? Who is this angel of the Lord? Well, we see the angel of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. We, we see the angel of the Lord in Genesis 22, 31, 48, Exodus 3, Joshua 5, Judges 6, just to name some of them. He's all throughout the Old Testament. And here's the thing. When we think of angel, we think of, you know, winged creature, flying around, uh, delivering messages. And, and so here's the thing. The angel simply means messenger. So what we see here is there's a messenger of the Lord coming this, this lady. But the interesting thing that separates this angel from what we see in the New Testament, when we think of a Gabriel who's announcing something to Mary, that she's going to be pregnant, all of these things. Like the, the interesting thing is, All of those angels say, fear not, don't worship me, right? Like when when they come to uh, somebody in the New Testament, we see it with with John and Revelation, right? There's, There's an angel that comes, he's just down on his face and the angel's like, stop worshiping me. Like I'm weirded out by that, right? Like they're like, this is, this is not appropriate, But the thing about this angel of the Lord is that we see he received worship, judged the earth in Exodus, forgives sins. And those who meet the angel of the Lord believe they just met God. Do you see her response in verse 13? Here's what she says. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. You are a God of seeing. Scholars throughout history believe that the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. He's in pre-incarnate Jesus. Right, like we, 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 a lot of times we say, well, Jesus just shows up in the New Testament, right? No. 
He's all throughout the Bible. He's all throughout the scriptures. He's there at the very beginning. And now what we see is that the angel of the Lord, what may believe is Jesus, is speaking to this woman who's been abused, beaten, broken, lost. See, if we thought about it like this, is that it's this, Jesus found her by a spring of water in the wilderness. Jesus said to her, return. Jesus said to her, behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. Jesus gave her hope. Jesus saw her. See, what, what changed this woman? It's when she saw the God who sees. Truly here I have seen him who looks after me. Who looks after me. The all-powerful, loving God comes near to her. The woman who's been abused, the woman who's been beaten, the one who's been sent out, who's been washed their hands clean of this lady, the mistake. Jesus comes near to her and speaks to her. Let's look at some takeaways. How does God's presence transform us? How does it, when when we know in the most messy situations where we were the problem, right? Where we made the mistake, where we put our hands in a situation and said, I'm in control. How does God transform people like that? Number one, just a quick takeaway, it shifts us from grumbling to grace. From grumbling to grace. See, what what did the 10 years of waiting reveal? It revealed this gap in Sarai's life and Abram of an impatience in God's plan. Right? That, that, That was so important for them to see. Right? It's so relatable for us today that when we see this gap, There's a decision that we have to make. And is it grumbling? Or is it leaning into God's grace? Is it it leaning into God's plan, not my own? See, there's this phrase that we use. It's it's this. It's it's when when we get caught. That's not the real me. It just, it wasn't the real me then who was it? Right? Like, who was it? Did somebody, like, take over your body during that time and then you just wasn't really you? The scary part that we have to face is this. That person really is me. It is me. And again, there's a huge gap in my life. Far more evil than I want to admit. It's like C.S. Lewis used the illustration of, you know, when you, when you have rats in your attic. He says, when you turn on the lights and you see the scurrying, then you know that there's rats in the attic. 
But if you never go up in the attic and never turn on the lights, then you're like, well, I'm fine. It's like, whether you see them or you don't, you still got rats in the attic. But what God does is he brings light to those things. And you know how, how it starts to come out? It starts to come out in some of our grumblings. So maybe we don't say it out loud, but like, what are the things that we're grumbling about right now? Right? And we're grumbling about it because at the end of the day, there, there's only one who's in charge. And it's God. James 5, 9 says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Who's the judge? Capital J, judge, it's God. And he's the one who's deciding what's coming into my life and what's not. And so I can grumble about it, right? Or I can say, man, I really need grace right now to get through it. I really need grace to choose, to, to, to trust God in the midst of this. And so my encouragement is this, pray your grumbles, don't spread them. I pray your grumbles don't spread them. You know, the only one who doesn't gossip about the things that you're going through, God, right? And so pray your grumbles don't spread them because it's in this space that our grumbles turn into signs of God's grace. And you start to say this, you can still love me even though I did that or I thought that. Right? Because it's like years later after you've been transformed and God's worked in your life, you're like, man, I can't believe I used to think like that. I can't believe I used to do that. I can't believe I actually used to grumble about that. It's because we've been transformed. It's because we've been changed. And so God's presence, it's being in God's presence, praying to him, trusting him through these things, that it's him that turns this, this grumbling into seeing his grace. Second, it reminds us that God searches the heart when we're honest, what does God see? Much of the time, what he sees is sin, rebellion, self-centeredness, right? Like we look at this story of Sarah, like what, what is it that she keeps going back to? It's, it's, it's all about her. It's all about her. See, in, in understanding this about ourselves, this is the bad news, right? It's the bad news. But it's the reason that we need the gospel, it's the reason that we need the good news of, of God. Because as we see the depths of our sin, there's only one way to reach up. And it's not within ourselves. It's outside of ourselves. It's God. John Newton was talking once to a man who was very discouraged about sins that he just couldn't get past. He just could not get past these particular sins in his life. And he was really devastated by just how bad he was. But here's what John Newton says to him. He says, you say you find it hard to believe it is compatible with the divine purity, God, to embrace or employ such a monster as yourself. He says, we have little to rejoice in ourselves, but we have right and reason to rejoice in him. We have right and reason to rejoice in him. Like, where does my rejoicing come from? Does it just come from like how great of a person I am and how much I've done? No. My rejoicing comes in looking at the one who 
says that he would actually rejoice in me. A broken person, a hurting person, a, a person who grumbles and, and tries to make my own way, yet still loves me. But God is searching the heart, and he's searching the heart of Abram and Sarah. Next, it challenges us to trust God's wisdom over our own. Here's the thing. I've seen it in life, and I've also read about it before. And it's this. There are people in life who believe they're experts. And what happens when you think that you're an expert is you overestimate your ability. You overestimate your ability. Right? So it's like if I'm an expert in one area, then I'm an expert in every area. Right? Like you see that in life. We see that in different situations. We overestimate our ability to know what's best for our lives. You know that? Like, like for a lot of us, like we overestimate our ability to think, like I know what's best for my life. Proverbs 2.6 says this, for the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. If you're looking for guidance, God's will, all of these things, it's going to start with understanding that God is wiser than me. Right? It's, it's that God's wiser than you. That whatever you're going through, it's, it's that God's wisdom is, it trumps my wisdom every time. So I have to lean into that even though I'm going through something hard. It trumps my wisdom every time. Because again, what was, what was the plan here? It was to lean into their own wisdom. Lastly, it gives us strength to obey when it's hard. Walter Brueggemann, he was a commentator, makes a great evaluation when he points out that Abraham, Sarah, and Hagar were fine with leaving everything the way it was. Right, like they were kind of fine with their situation. Like, okay, I'm going to run away. And Abraham and Sarah are like, we're going to move on with our lives. They were fine with everything the way it was. But it's God that reopens the case and brings resolution. It's God that reopens this situation. Because now, here's the thing, Hagar has to go back. Can you imagine how awkward that must have been? That must have been extremely awkward. How did she do it? Well, God commanded it. So she did it on his strength and holding on to this promise that there would be a son that he would give her. See, what's going to send you back when you don't want to go back? When there's moments where you're like, God, I understand you're wiser than me, but I just don't want to go back to that place. I know you're telling me to go, but I don't want to go. It's knowing that God sees you in your deepest pain. And he's the one that's going to bring healing. He's the one that's going to bring healing. There's this um, acclaimed foreign film, Three Seasons. It's a series of vignettes about uh, life in post-war Vietnam. And one of the stories is about um, this bicycle driver. He's, he's just a lowly guy. His name's Hay. And this beautiful girl, Lon. Now, 
with Lon's line of work, she is in poverty and she sells herself to men. And Lon lives in this place where she goes into these beautiful hotels for a night. And this line of work that she's in just destroys her. It enslaves her. And this bicycle driver, Hay, every night he he looks for her. He tries to find her. It's because he loves her. And so he enters into this bike race to win money, right? There's a, there's a money uh, prize that, that's at the end of this. And so he wants to win this. And he does. And so with the money, Hay goes and he pays Lon. And he says, would you just stay one night with me in this hotel. And the thing that's the the shocking part of this story is that all he wanted to do was to make sure that she was safe for that night and to watch her go to sleep. That's it. She's not abused anymore. She's not hurt anymore. He just wanted to watch over her and make sure she was safe for that one night. That's why he wanted to win this race. Because he wanted her to know that she was loved and that he would do whatever it took to make sure that she knew that. See, what do you and I have that Hagar didn't see? she didn't get to see the reason why she was so loved. Right, like, like how is it that the angel of the Lord can, can do all of this, can come into her life, can break through and just say, this is the new trajectory for your life? It's because this angel of the Lord, Jesus, would pay the price for her. You see, she was beaten and bruised by Abram and Sarai. But there was one who could relate to her who would be beaten and bruised to the very last breath. That's why Isaiah 52, 14 through 15 says this, as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human resemblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. What's the thing that was seen? It's when Jesus Christ went to the cross and was beaten for you and me. It's when the angel of the Lord was His last breath was taken from him. See, what is it that's going to change us from monsters at our boiling point to just take over life, to be tender-hearted, trusting people in God? It's it's, It's when we see how much it costs God to be with us. 
what he was willing to endure for us. See, it's when you see that. The way I put it, it's like, it's like many times we're just like, we've got this big screen in front of us and we're sitting there on our mobile device being distracted from the big picture. And the big picture is that Jesus loves us. He loves you. And he would go to the the farthest reaches to be with you because he was willing to die for you. He did it. And that's what changes our lives. And when you've seen God, when you've seen God like that, because she said she saw God, but when we see God beaten and bruised for us, that's what changes us. That's what changes us. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you for all that you've done for us. I thank you for the payment that you've made for us. That, that when you come to the broken and the weary and the hurting and the abused, Lord, you tell her you love her, but you show her. And yet today, God, we come in here beaten up, bruised, hurting. And I pray that you speak to us. You help us to see this redeeming presence of Jesus Christ. Let that break through into our hearts and our lives. Let us see that you sought her. She didn't just stumble into it, but you sought her. And that today you seek us. We wouldn't be here if you didn't seek us. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your kindness towards us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this resource from Grace City Church. If you found this helpful, feel free to share it and enjoy more resources at gracecitysd.com. Grace City Church exists to equip people with the gospel for everyday life.